Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that put hairs on your chest, lead in your pencil, and the ball in the back of the net. Don't ask me what any of that means, because as usual, I'm just talking gibberish. And I'm Henry McRae, and I'm joined by two men who hopefully won't be talking gibberish, Transfer Window regulars Ian McGarry and Duncan Castles. Coming up, we'll be trying to find the right man to fill the vacant manager seat at Leicester City, and we'll be looking at the hottest two players in the Premier League and asking how long it will take before they are both on their way to the Bernabeu. But first, he was the special one, he was the happy one. What is he now? The miserable one? The defensive one? The offensive one? What exactly is going on with Jose Mourinho? He's been heavily criticised for his defensive football, he's been stirring up trouble with Antonio Conte, and he's been giving interviews to French TV about how he won't finish, finish his career at Old Trafford. And Duncan, you wrote a story this week along those lines. So tell us, what's going on with Josie? Well, it's a, a classic Josie Mourinho weekend, I suppose you could say, because you've got the Saturday where he um, gets a, a 0-0 draw at Liverpool, which was a reasonable result in the context of a season and with um, with only two uh, first-choice midfield players available to him, but um, finds himself described as the enemy of football and the... Uh, the leader of of anti-football, um, which you've heard so many times before. And then the next day, um, uh, TF1 uh, channel in France uh, did a special a broadcast, a special interview with Mourinho that had been recorded the previous week, in which he was asked about um, Paris Saint-Germain and the fact that he'd uh, turned them down twice before, um, as he told uh, the interviewer um, in a previous interview, actually, when he was at Chelsea, and his response um, to a question about whether he would um, turn them down again if he was invited to take that job was um, to say that the, the, the one sure thing he knew was that he wouldn't finish his career at, um, at Manchester United. Um, I wrote a story subsequent to that um, talking about that uh, that change of public stance because um, just in the summer, in the pre-season, he, he, he had an interview with ESPN where he was asked about whether he would remain at Manchester United long term um, and had talked about his you know managing for another 15 years and, and why not stay at, at, at Manchester United? It, it would be difficult to do, but if it was possible, why not? Um, and so I was discussing and, and I put in a fair amount of background of uh, difficulties that had been at the club, things that had, had um, issues that Mourinho had had since arriving at Manchester United, which is primarily about the organisation of the club, um, something that's fundamental to him is, is he wants a football club directed completely in the most efficient way to win games, things like the medical department, things like recruitment policy, things like... Uh, Training ground setup, hotels, all the details, which which some of which might not seem very important, um, looking from a distance, but actually all contribute to success in the field, and and those issues haven't all been resolved, and there's kind of a a simmering tension there, um, and I sort of headlined it saying that Manchester United face the possibility of of um, of losing Mourinho, and I, I think it's one of these situations as a journalist where you've got to put your hand up and say I probably. Um, wrote it a little bit harder than I should have. I didn't uh, have as much um, balance there as it might have been because there are those issues there, but I don't think the issues are as severe as um, the suggestion that he might leave immediately. Um, 
there are issues. There's a he, his contract situation has not uh, been discussed. He's um, although it's been reported that he was about to sign a new contract. There's it's in no way is it he at that stage. So um, there are things to be resolved there, but uh, we'll we'll see how it goes um, between him and Manchester United and whether Paris Saint-Germain step up at their interest in, in hiring him again. Two things I think we know about Jose Mourinho historically um, are that a Jose tends to put himself before the club that he is managing. And I mean that um, as benignly as I can. He does brilliant jobs as has been shown wherever he goes in terms of winning trophies and making turning clubs around. However, um, his basic foundational principle is that um, he looks after himself. Um, that may be one of the reasons why he has never um, gone beyond three years in any club job since his coaching career began. We're year two at Manchester United. The second thing <clears throat> I would say uh, about Jose Mourinho in terms of um, himself and historically is that um, he will try to get the best possible deal for himself um, when success has been achieved and cash in on any kind of um, improvement that he's made at any club. I think he's been surprised um, that Manchester United, uh, given his contract expires in 18 months, <clears throat> have not um, come to the table to renegotiate or discuss with him. Um, he sees that as, I don't know, something of, uh, disrespectful on their part given he uh, won trophies last season and is obviously the, the club is competing at all levels this season. So maybe the last week or so in terms of the uh, TF1 interview in France, the praise of the PSG project, etc., etc. Just a little bit of a shot across the bows of Ed Woodward and people at Manchester United with regards to, look, do you want to keep me? Do you want me to make an offer, which means I sign a new contract um, because I am in... Uh, in demand elsewhere and I will be as you know so if you've got someone else better lined up who you think can do a better job than me then that's fine but if not then I suggest that you uh, get your lawyers out and uh, talk to my people and see about a new contract. With regards to PSG I'd say that Unai Emery uh, is in a um, pretty invidious position in this season um, League uh, really matters no more to the owners of that club they want to see a Champions League win or at least a very significant improvement in terms of Champions League performance and term, you know, get to the final, basically. Um, if not, then I think his job will be um, under review at best. Or he'll be sacked, um, probably. And at that point, <clears throat> Jose Mourinho would have to be one of the leading contenders for that job. So, um, for Manchester United now, they have to make a decision because Jose's not one to um, like to be messed around. He'll do his job, of course he will, but he will. Um, he'll also start looking about his future if he thinks that Manchester United are not interested in renewing. But do we do we think that United should have started negotiations by now? I mean, 18 months to go, why wouldn't they have? You would expect United to be absolutely Henry, keen to have him well, to, Henry, to renew his contract. So Henry, what, he, has, he, has, he has precedence elsewhere. Antonio Conte's contract was upgraded after one year, having won the Premier League title. Uh, Mourinho obviously won the Europa League and got them into Champions League and won the League Cup. So he'd be looking at Chelsea and thinking, well, they upgraded their manager's contract, albeit he didn't. Conte's um, choice was not to extend, but simply to take a, a pay rise. And Mourinho's looking at it and thinking, well, where's my um, negotiation for what I've achieved at a club which was failing 
and what, which I have turned around in one season and continue to improve upon performances. So I, I think any manager, and Josie always knows his own value, would look at around at his uh, colleagues stroke um, opponents and say, well, look, if if they're getting it, are they getting a contract renewal or whatever? Why am I not getting it? Right. So um, why do we why do we think United have not done that? United United's policy on contracts has been quite consistent recently. They tend to let them run down to the final year before initiating renegotiations. They've done that with most of the players. You you got you look at two players that they need to renew at the moment. Ander Herrera is in the final year of his contract. Um, and uh, Marouan Fellaini is also in the final year of his contract. So that's quite quite typical with Manchester United. They haven't, post-Ferguson, they haven't been in a position where they've actually even had to think about renewing a manager's contract. They've, they've more, more been thinking about getting rid of their managers. And I think my perspective on that is this is the issue here. It's not, it's not primarily a financial issue. Obviously, a guy like Mourinho expects to be paid at the top level relative to his peers because he thinks he's the best manager in the world and with, with a great deal of justification. However, what I see as the key issue here is the commitment from the club. Mourinho feels he's the only guy who could do, take on the job that, that Manchester United were faced with when he, I mean, he talked about how he gets clubs when they're in, in crisis and he gets clubs at a difficult point. He had a, a massive turnaround project at Manchester United, which is still very much in progress, but it's going, it's clearly going in the right direction. What he wants from the club is the commitment to support him along that project. So it's not so much the, the symbolism of saying, we want you, we will extend it, we give you the new contract. It's, we give you that and we go along with what you want to do to change the that's dynamic key, the structures of the club to make it the club more successful in the football field. That's why he left Chelsea Football Club, because there was conflict over that. That's why he left Real Madrid, because there was conflict over that. That's the thing that winds Jose Mourinho up more than anything else in football, is when he sees people around him who are not utterly focused on making himself the most effective thing it can be to win football matches. He just doesn't understand that and he doesn't accept it and that results in conflict every time. That's key, Duncan. I think we can transfer um, what you've said into um, a another sort of phrase which should be control and authority. If Josie demands to be in control and he demands to have the authority to make decisions because he is a control freak and he micromanages every part of the club, as you've already made reference to earlier in the podcast. So he feels it's important that with 18 months of his contract left to go, the players look to him and know that he's going to be the guy in charge for the next three, four, five years so that they then um, conduct themselves with the respect and authority for him that he expects. He feels undermined if his position is in any way questioned, especially in the media, um, so therefore, giving him a new contract is a sign that Manchester United are uh, putting trust in him and more importantly have faith in him to uh, improve and indeed continue the project of renewing Manchester United as both a dominant domestic and European force. So um, with that being the case, we spoke about this uh, last week on the transfer window. Um, uh, the, the Glazers, when uh, Ferguson agreed to retirement, wanted more control in the football department. They made mistakes, um, they sacked two managers, and then they brought in a manager whose autocratic style is, if anything, the most similar to what 
the way Ferguson's was during his reign. So they've conceded that they're not fit uh, for purpose with regards to running a football department or having a major influence. Now, what Josie wants to do now is, is confirm that with a new contract which says you're in charge. Do we think he came to United initially with a plan of being there long term? I mean, I'm looking at the signings he's made and they don't look like quick fixes. You know, um, Lukaku's 24, Pogba's 24, uh, Lindelof's 23, Baye's 23. You know, he's signing. He's, he, when you look at those, you think he's trying to build a dynasty here. Um, so, you know, that looks like a long-term plan rather than a short-term let's win the Champions League and move on to PSG. Absolutely. I mean, when I interviewed him uh, last at the beginning of last month, that we, we talked in great detail about the transfer policy and he explained explicitly that when he came to the club, he, he planned the transfer policy for three years. So three summer windows was how long he thought it would take to get the club back to the proper level it needed to be at. So that's that's longer term planning than you see from pretty much any manager these days at, at, at an elite club. Um, but on top of that, yes, it was always his goal to be at Manchester United long term if the project worked. And I think I think one of the things that riles Mourinho is that you get these complaints that he has never been at clubs long term and that he's never done that dynastic managerial thing of, of building a squad and rebuilding a squad. And he, his answer to that has always been circumstances. And actually, if you look at the work I did at my clubs, they have had long term implications. If you look at what I did when I came into Chelsea, that laid the foundation for Chelsea to win the the European Cup and to win multiple leagues. If you look at what I did at Real Madrid, I turned them around, I won the league, I got them to three European Cup semi-finals, they won the European Cup afterwards. Chelsea, again, the work I did there led to set up the basis of a squad that, that won the Premier League twice in, in a three-year period. So he, he's conscious of that. The, 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 the next step for him is to actually do it, to remain at a club long enough to say, you know, a five, six-year stint where he has built and rebuilt a squad. And, you know, um, Matthew Syed was talking about this in the BBC and criticising Mourinho for not being dynastic. And I, I think it's quite a, it's a harsh criticism in modern football because I don't think there are any dynastic managers anymore. Awesome, you know, nobody lasts. Yeah, I know. And he's only there because he's, he's been there forever and, and left the club in a state where they don't have the bravery to change things. His dynasty no, no, I, is not I, a success. I say that, Duncan, because last um, in his last year, uh, so last season, actually, even last year, in the second spell at Chelsea, Mourinho seemed to make specific reference to the fact that some managers get to stay at clubs regardless of where they win trophies or not. Regardless of where they produce successful teams, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and it seemed to me to be a, a pointed um, uh, aspect of what he feels he deserves and what he should have earned at many clubs before now. Albeit he chose to leave Inter Milan, um, and albeit yeah, he, he chose in the end to leave Real Madrid. He didn't choose to leave Chelsea, and he was sacked very ignominiously. And I think the the uh, statements made last season in his first uh, year at Manchester United were directed both at Arsene Wenger's tenure at Arsenal and also the um, the humiliating way he was uh, treated by Chelsea uh, when he in his third year back. So um, I don't think it's something um, he he takes lightly. I think it's something which, in his mind at least, 
he would dearly love to um, complete. However, I would suspect his personality, his um, mode of operations, and the way that he does wind people up um, in the sort of very critical manner, which uh, can be his quality or his downfall, mean that if he gets a chance to do that, Manchester United is questionable. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's correct. I think when he, he talked explaining his PSG comments this week, he actually specifically cited Wenger and said, you know, nobody nobody lasts seventeen years at a football club anymore. Arsene Wenger will be the last one. Um, there won't be another Arsene Wenger. And, and just look at elite clubs in, in Europe these days and, and name a, a coach of an elite club who, la- who manages to last more than three years. It's it, it's hard. You hardly even get three years these days at the top clubs. The turnover is, is very fast. And, and I think, actually, one of the contributing factors is something we saw on Saturday. So you saw Mourinho uh, goes to one of... Uh, you know, a, a very difficult historical fixture for Manchester United, not one they win very often. He goes there with a limited squad. He comes away with a nil-nil draw, and he gets pilloried, and, and remaining unbeaten for the season, two points off the, the top of the league, and he gets pilloried for his supposedly uh, negative anti-football. You, you saw articles which you've seen time and time again. Every time there is uh, Mourinho plays a game of a specific level and is seen to have not... Um, attacked as much as the critics would like. You see the same old article about how he's too defensive and negative and, and killing football. And I think that's actually, that kind of criticism is actually a factor in the in the having managers last as long as they used to because it, you know, it wears it wears people down. You get, you also get people buying into it, the, the idea that a manager's first priority must be to entertain um, the neutral audience rather than to get a result for his club. That, that lack of understanding um, of the nuances of football and, and tacticals, uh, decisions, uh, formations, etc., is something I discussed with Josie when he was in Madrid um, at Real, and I had the uh, opportunity to, to meet him for lunch. And he said in England, it, it, one of the things that frustrated him greatly, he said the passion of the fans, etc., makes the Premier League one of the most exciting places in the world to work. But the naivety or ignorance of people with regards to the finer tactical issues of the game is something that frustrates me because they cannot appreciate that when you have a certain situation, you've got a certain group of players to choose from, you've got a fixture with which you have to get a result from and cope with, you tactically prepare your team not to lose. And on the continent, that kind of approach is applauded because it's pragmatic and it's effective. However, in this country... It's all about populism and popularity. And it's like, well, Josie's an easy target. Personally, I think he quite revels in the whole, you know, leader of the anti-football brigade because he knows himself that he's won more trophies than any other manager currently serving. So uh, maybe Pep actually has one more. But anyway, um, point but did, you, did, did, did you watch them last night uh, against I did. Um, Benfica? So were you entertained? Are you not entertained, as Maximus might say? Um, for me... Being entertained by football is is a kind of uh, a, a random pleasure. Um, I tend to look at it tactically the way a coach would look at it, as my, in my limited capacity to do so. Um, and I can absolutely um, enjoy 
uh, a nil-nil draw or a what seems to be an outside a boring game because of the way the coaches have set up, because of the way the players have been told and coached tactically to deal with certain opponents, etc. You can and, understand why they might be criticised for it being a bit dull. I mean, the you know TV revenues for football are you know based on it being an entertainment. While it's that match was they not are, exactly David, the but, most... but for but for a manager, his job depends on results. And, and winning trophies. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not criticising Mourinho, but I am, I suppose, trying to understand the uh, reason why people might be uh, critical of the style of play, which in the last well, couple of games has been, you know, two big games. You've got uh, arguably the biggest game in English football, and you, then you've got a Champions League uh, class. You know, big money's been spent to buy the rights for these uh, sure. games, and it's for entertainment purposes. But you wouldn't say either of them were particularly entertaining to the majority of football fans. But, who but, but maybe not but, looking at it like you are in a in a deeply tactical sense. But if that's the premise upon which we watch football, then surely when Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool got absolutely hammered by Manchester City, we should be applauding Klopp for saying, well done, Jürgen, you left your team completely open to be slaughtered <laughs> by Manchester City. And it was really entertaining for all of us. So thanks, Jürgen, even though you're feeling a bit down about the way your team played. Duncan, what do you think about this uh, style of uh, play from Manchester United? I think it's pragmatic. I think you've got, you've got to look at the circumstances. He, he, he's going into those games without his best midfielder and without a guy... Uh, Fellaini, who gives them a lot of options in the midfield, and and yeah, something something people missed in that Liverpool game. He starts with Matic and Herrera. He's only got two bodies in the middle against a three-man um, uh, Liverpool midfield, which was playing far more conservatively in terms of stopping counterattacks uh, than they have been for a number of games, and and they needed to do that because Klopp needed a clean sheet as well, and Klopp actually for all his stuff about. As a, as a Liverpool manager, I couldn't play that way. If you listen to the rest of the conference, press conference, he's actually praising his players for playing more defensively astute football than they had done in, in previous matches. So he, he's only got two against three. In the first minute, um, Ander Herrera got, got a kick in the, in the back, in his back, which, um, which gave him a proper knock and... and uh, hindered them through the game and will be a factor, was also a, a worry for United going into the Benfica match. So what's he supposed to do? Um, does he go all out against a team who we know love counter-attacking and we we know are set up to be more conscious of, of uh, the way Manchester United are going to play in that match and are desperate to get a win and then he loses? Um, and then he, will he get praise for um, for playing more entertain for being more open and playing entertaining football? I guarantee you, he won't get praise for that. He'll get taken to the cleaners for losing to Liverpool, and, and when Liverpool had only won one match in the last eight, he goes to he then goes to Benfica with the same squad problems. Benfica have to win that match because the, their Champions League campaign is dead if they don't, um, and it sets his team out well, controls the game. Um, gets the goal when required, comes away out of that match with a win, nine points out of nine in the Champions League, qualification almost ensured, move on to the, the, the next game. And this, this is a difficult period for Manchester United. They're worried that their resources are stretched at the moment and they've got a lot of difficult games and they need to get through them with maximum points possible. And that's what he's doing. And, and frankly, does he get paid 
for entertaining? When, when the Glazers decide to renew his contract or not, are they going to say, well, the neutral really enjoyed those games where you lost 2-1 to Manchester City or 5-4 to Manchester City? Um, or are they going to say, well, you, we won the Premier League under you um, and you drew 0-0 at Liverpool, but we don't care about that because you won, you won the Premier League? And in fairness as well, Henry, we should point out that it was a, a short month ago that we were all fawning over Manchester United for 4-0 wins in successive Absolutely. games and setting a right. Premier League record for that. So um, the fact that he's had you know, three, four major injury um, problems to deal with since then, I think would definitely have a, a, a huge impact on the results and the way the team plays. So um, in terms of Jose, I think like, better pragmatic than a loser. Well, I'm just looking at the numbers and I think the Premier League has played eight, won six, drawn two goals for 21 goals against two. Champions yeah. League played three, won three goals for eight goals against one. And I think in the League Cup, uh, played one tie and won four, one against Burton Albion. So in total, I think it's 12 games, 10 wins, two draws, 33 goals for and four against. Um, so hard to argue with the cold numbers. Um I'd say that's a, that's, a, that's a fairly Disaster emphatic message. Season, eh? <laughs> that's a fairly emphatic message to the uh, the anti-football um, accusers. Okay, well, uh, from um, one manager who you know is uh, crossing headlines to one uh, managerial vacancy um, that's uh, demanding some space in our media as well. Leicester City, of course. Um, Ian, what do we think is going to happen here? Um, it's interesting, um, Henry, because uh, the uh, when the new or the current owners of Leicester City took over, um, and the, the the money from Thailand was invested, they openly admitted they knew very little about English football, and therefore they employed um, a coterie of advisors, consultants who they believed did know about English football. Uh, those were the people who were responsible for the appointment of Claudio Ranieri, which, as we know. Um, started and um, maintained something uh, truly wonderful and miraculous in the title win, but ended in uh, a sorry uh, knifing in the back by uh, a certain manager who's just had his karma police come round and arrest him. Um, so Shakespeare goes, Shakespeare got the job by default because the players said he was better than Ranieri. Now those football advisors are come back into play which is why I think, uh, you know, the, some of the candidates being talked about um, are not necessarily the ones who will end up with a job. Uh, to name two, I'd say Alan Pardew is someone who's been out the game too long. Um, I think that his uh, uh, methods of coaching, the, um, his reputation um, have diminished in the time that he's been out of the game and it would be a big risk to employ him. Um, in terms of Sam Allardyce, I would also say... Uh, my information is that Sam would like a job in international football, which better suits his new lifestyle, where he takes time with his family, uh, enjoys his life, uh, goes racing, does a bit of travelling, etc., etc. Uh, not to mention the fact that um, if he did take another Premier League job before July the 1st this year, he'd have to pay back the £3 million bonus he got for keeping Crystal Palace up uh, last season. And I think, big Sam, you know, he's bought me a pint or two, but I don't think he's quite willing to pay £3 million back. So therefore, I'd rule those two out, which brings me to who I think are the um, the, the leading contenders. Um, Chris Coleman, wonderful job with Wales, out of contract, 
has um, indicated that perhaps uh, now is the time to leave. The stock is high. Uh, Sending a new contract, having not qualified for the World Cup, uh, might diminish um, his value in the current market. But um, Leicester City is a club who are very aware of their identity of their fans. Um, They like, I think, to have a manager who speaks his mind. Uh, They like to have a manager who's straight uh, with them regarding performances and play, etc., etc., but obviously they want to achieve success. So Coleman, internationally certainly, has done, he's got Premier League experience, obviously, with Fulham. Um, and then you've got Michael O'Neill, who's done an incredible job transforming Northern Ireland from uh, you know, a nowhere backwater nation in terms of world football into uh, one which is now greatly respected and has achieved remarkable results in the last four years under his stewardship. Um, both are British, again, fitting in with the Leicester City fans identity um, and I think those two would be very much considered and I think Duncan um, has got quite strong opinions on Sean Dyche and so I will leave Sean Dyche to Duncan Yeah, Sean Dyche is obviously being mentioned and you know he's, the, the bookmakers have him as second favourite which isn't always the best of indicators but he's uh, he's clearly the guy who, if you decide to appoint an English coach, he's the, the flavour of the month at the moment for for what he's been doing. Um, the interesting thing for me is if you're Sean Dyche, probably Leicester City is the best job you can get at the moment. It's this, this idea that it's um, impossible for English managers to get top positions. And, and I think it's correct. Um, I think... Uh, if you want to get one of the top, the big six clubs in England as an English manager, you would have to take an intermediate step from Burnley, um, for example, or Bournemouth, um, to someone like Leicester or West Bromwich Albion and, and prove you can uh, get those teams into Europa League. Um, and then, possibly at that stage, you might have a chance of getting one of the, the very top jobs in England. So if, if Sean Dyche has the ambition um, to move up the Premier League ladder, which I'm sure he does, then possibly this is this is his best opportunity. Um, you can't really see a job like West Bromwich Albion opening up. Um, maybe, maybe Everton would be um, the, the, sort of the best he could manage, but Everton have a new owners who are quite starstruck to the extent that they'd, they'd um, waste money signing Wayne Rooney. And putting him on a on a big contract when he's clearly past his best as a footballer. So I think if Everton do ch- decide to change Cumin, the likelihood is they will go for, or the owner at least will want to go for a more glamorous um, foreign appointment. So it'll be interesting. I, you, you, Ian, seem to think that the that, that Leicester will definitely go for a a British coach rather than a, a foreign coach in this. Partly because Duncan, I don't, <clears throat> I don't see that many foreign coaches out there who. You know, could make an immediate impact. List what Leicester need right now is experience and knowledge of the league, because they are in perilous state to be relegated, and that should not be the case given their team were champions two seasons ago, playing Champions League football and everything else. And I'm sure what the owner is thinking is that we're about to enter the negotiation for the next TV contract, which, <clears throat> excuse me, with the um, added interest from um, American giants Amazon and Netflix is expected to be even more 
lucrative than the last one. And we're talking five point one billion pounds. The last one. Now the you know the 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 carrot on the stick for every Premier League club has got to be to maintain their Premier League status in order to get their fair share of that bounty. Um so I don't think Leicester City's owners, and as I said before, their advisors are going to take a chance on a foreign manager coming in in October, November, with no knowledge of the English game, of the Premier League, of the clubs he's playing against, and hope that that manager is going to keep them up. <clears throat> what we might see is an appointment till the end of this season with a break clause in the contract, obviously, if they stay up or go down. But I think that would be a British manager who would come in because they feel like like they're not competing for anything this year except Premier League survival. They need to get someone in who can guarantee them that. That way, they can build on what they achieve. They thought Shakespeare was the man to do that. He's clearly not. And now they have to find someone else. And that's why I think um, the British blueprint is more attractive at this stage in Leicester City's um, uh, circumstances rather than in the long term via the, uh, the tie owners. It's, it's interesting... The, what the title win obviously has done to the club stature because suddenly they're being linked with someone like Carlo Ancelotti, who, you know, three years ago, if the, the Leicester job came up, you, would, you know, you would never have been expected a, a figure like that to be linked with the job. But how, how attractive is a, the role at Leicester City? Let's say someone like Marco Silva at Watford, would, would he consider that a promotion? Would he, is that a bigger, better job than the one he's got? Or should he be holding out for an Everton or I think, you know, a Newcastle or something? I think you have to look at the table, Henry, to see where Watford are. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I think they are, um, their position currently in the Premier League is slightly sort of flattering. Um, but they have achieved that mainly on the basis of Marcus Silva's um, very effective coaching and extremely good organisational um, processes with regards to the way that he coaches the team and he sets them out. Now, <clears throat> Silva's only been in the, the um, Watford job for five months. I think it would be detrimental to his career to, to jump ship and leave and go to Leicester, even if it was for a big pay rise. So I don't see Silva as being someone who's, who would necessarily consider that move at this moment in his career. As for Carlo Ancelotti, I think he's been quite explicit in saying that he's happy to um, take a sabbatical until uh, next summer, at which point I think there will be many more interesting, many more high-profile jobs um, available to him than are currently in the market. And obviously, Leicester City is one, one which is, but we expect maybe Everton or West Ham to possibly come up before the international break. So <clears throat> I would say that Leicester's, um, in terms of their scope of search, should be much more realistic and much more practical and look to someone who can actually guarantee their Premier League survival rather than trying to throw money at a big name or, in the case of Silva, take him from a rival club um, and hope that he can suddenly you know, wave a magic wand and make them suddenly a better team. I think, I think um, Watford and Leicester are, are much of a muchness as far as someone like Mar Marco Silva would be looking in terms of his career development. You know, Watford's obviously not the peak of where he wants to be in, a, in his career. But he's at the moment he's perfectly positioned to get a top six job if he carries on doing well at Watford, who have got a good squad of players and he, he's had his preseason in place, he's got his organisation in place, and he's got results so far. So if he continues to to produce those results and and places Watford high up the table this season, then come the summer 
when clubs, bigger clubs, are, are going to be looking for a new manager, he will be a guy who could say, I've got Premier League experience. I've succeeded in both jobs I've done. Um, the ability that I could be someone who gives you an advantage over the usual cadre of managers you might you might be appointing. So to move to Leicester now would be would actually put him okay. He gets to he gets a, a nicer stadium to work in, and and uh, we'd probably get a pay rise as well. But in terms of his long term career, he'd, be, he'd probably be putting himself in a more difficult situation because he's taking over a club that have got relegation issues, probably not got as balanced a squad, certainly doesn't have. He has to parachute in during the season, which, to be fair, he's shown he's done because he managed to do it at Hull City. But why why make your job more complicated for yourself if your long-term goal is to get a job like, for example, Arsenal, um, who, as mentioned several weeks ago, would be, for me, ideal candidate for Arsenal in, in their, their current situation. But if Arsenal's not available, what about Everton? <coughs> Everton would be would be looking for a guy like him or a guy like him would be a great fit to them. What I would say though is that just talking Leicester in this context, if they could unearth another Marco Silva, if they could find someone on the market who has his abilities and is out of a job and is prepared to come in and turn things around quickly, then perhaps that would be a better appointment than taking a a guy who's got experience of the Premier League but doesn't have the, uh, the the ability to 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 be a top top coach. Okay, and let's find let, let's let's um, try a quick fire. We'll repeat some of the names that we've already discussed, but um, we'll we'll do it. Uh, good for the um, club and good for the manager, or bad for the club, bad for the manager type thing. Um, Ian, you want to go first? Yep. Are we ready? Yes. Sean Dice. Good for club, good for manager. Carlo Ancelotti. Good for the club, not good for the manager. Eddie Howe. Um, bad for the manager, good for the club. Gordon Strachan. Good for the manager, um, not good for the club. Michael O'Neill. Uh, good for the club, good for the manager. Martin O'Neill. Good for the manager, not good for the club. Roy Keane. Just forget that one, thank you. <laughs> David Wagner. Uh, good for the club, not good for the manager. Roberto Mancini. Uh, bad for the club, bad for the manager. Ryan Giggs. Um, not good for the club, not good for the manager. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Um, we'll see um, how this but let's, let's hope tie, let's, let's hope the owners of Leicester City are listening to the podcast. I, yeah. think that, I think there's some very good advice in there. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, obviously another week of uh, Champions League football um, behind us. The two hottest properties in the English game at the moment, uh, making some headlines. Harry Kane of Tottenham Hotspur and uh, Kevin De Bruyne of Manchester City. Um, we can expect, I'm sure, some uh, speculation about both players' futures as we approach the uh, January window and then again in the summer probably. 
How do we see these two playing out? Are they both Madrid-bound? Um, let's take the case of Harry Kane, uh, um, Henry. And uh, I've had recently discussions with several people who know the player well, who've known him for a long time, etc. And um, the, the, the feedback um, generally is that he is someone who is uh, unusual in modern football in that uh, he he does not constantly either seek nor um, look to uh, move somewhere else in terms of uh, improving his uh, wages, improving his uh, chances of winning trophies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because he feels very much at home at Tottenham Hotspur. He um, he loves the manager. He genuinely loves the club, and uh, the money he earns, according to those close to him, which is about one hundred twenty thousand a week. Um, we'll see him comfortable for the rest of his life should he even finish his career at Spurs and take um, incremental rises in that, not breaking Spurs' wage structure, which, of course, we know is uh, infamously uh, glass-stealing. So um, you have to wonder um, whether or not, uh, despite a, a, a very uh, impressive, if not outstanding, display by Kane and the Bernabeu this week against Real Madrid, um, whether he sees his best interests as lying in playing abroad. What I would um, counter with that is that uh, under Pochettino, Spurs have been impressive and improved, but they have yet to break the glass ceiling of trophies. And Harry Kane is someone, I'm sure, at the level that he's at, um, the way he's um, regarded being talked about in world football as one of the best number nines there is, will not want to end his career without winning the best, the, the, I say the best, the biggest trophies. Um, we know that Steven Gerrard's you know, huge regret was never winning a Premier League title with Liverpool. He won everything else. Uh, I think Harry Kane uh, would not want to end his career regretting uh, not moving to a club where he won a league championship, where he won the Champions League, etc., etc. So I would put Harry Kane uh, into the... Um, uh, I guess the uh, selection of players who must decide uh, between what his own club at this moment, Spurs, ambition is and what his own personal ambition is because clearly if he wanted to move to Real Madrid, he would be very, very up for having him. Benzema is uh, tiring. He's um, getting, uh, well, he's all, I think he's over 30 now. Um, he's been a brilliant servant to the club, but clearly he's not the future. And Kane uh, could be the future for Real Madrid. As for Kevin De Bruyne, I think, I think that's a different um, kind of scenario and one which Duncan is, is, is kind of much more um, close to in terms of the circumstances of De Bruyne's contract at this moment in time. Yeah, look, I think first, first on Harry Kane, um, I think the English media has got a long and rich history of linking um, the best English player or the best English players of a generation with a move to Real Madrid or Barcelona. Um, but very, very few of them ever happen. Um, obviously, David Beckham went there, but we've seen player after player after player linked with these clubs and Real Madrid. The only one I can recall actually trying to buy was Steven Gerrard um, when Mourinho was manager. We should mention McManaman and Owen there, Duncan, in terms of players who actually did. Yeah, that and Gareth Bale. <laughs> but well, he's Gareth Bale's not English, is Oh, sorry. I thought you were talking British. No, he said English. All right. Oh, English. I, mean, sorry, sorry, Wales. I, think it, 
I think it's, I think it's specifically a kind of the obsession that the English media has with an excitement maybe is better than obsession. An excitement when, when they, they come across a player who looks like he can be a world-class player. And any young talent in England we see who breaks into the Premier League and has that kind of ability or potential ability gets built up into being something he is far quicker than he should be. I mean, I, I remember someone like Michael Mancian, who some, some blisters might not even know who he is, when he broke into the Chelsea team being linked with a move to Real Madrid for um, a, a period of time. So it's easy to generate these stories. It's all, all quite often in the interest of agents to say when, when, uh, when a, a journalist asks them, are Real Madrid interested in your player? You say, yes, of course they are because it, it helps increase their value. It's marketing. It's very good marketing. Even if the player is interested in the move, he has to take that decision to leave England and go to Spain, learn a new language, work in a different environment, not be the biggest star in, in the, the club um, when he has been the biggest star at the club he's leaving. Um, or, and there's always this option, move to a bigger club in England. So if you're a Tottenham player, you've got the option of going to Chelsea, you've got the option of going to Manchester United, you've got the option of going to Arsenal, Arsenal. if they would prepare to sell. <laughs> if you're Saul Campbell. But the money's Manchester City. If the, if the money's there, you can, you can make as much money at an English club and not give yourself the complication of changing your lifestyle around and learning a new language and... And more importantly, having to learn to perform in a league that's very different from the from the Premier League. So, so you've got those two hurdles to to get over in Harry Kane's case. And I, I'm not 100% convinced that he has proved himself at this stage um, in Champions League football and in international football to be the best option for Real Madrid when they look for a new number nine. Um, it's, it's interesting, Duncan. It's interesting that they sold Alvaro Morata to Chelsea, a player who I think, in many aspects, is much more similar to Harry Kane than anyone else. And therefore, it does sort of portend that uh, Zinedine Zidane does not see a centre forward of Kane's abilities, qualities, uh, etc., as necessarily the answer for a Real Madrid team. Yeah. So you've got. You, Definitely have to take those factors in consideration. With De Bruyne, with De Bruyne, I think um, there's very little chance of Madrid getting him. It's um, it's an incredibly tough ask to get a player out of Manchester City who Manchester City want to retain at present because they have the financial wherewithal to to stop deals happening. Um, I think his agent is interested in the move. I think his agent has always been uh, quite a calculated worker who who did well to and, and was very influential in De Bruyne leaving Chelsea to go to Germany um, to develop his career over there. Um, but De Bruyne's already very well paid at Manchester City and Manchester City are more than happy to substantially increase his contract um, Guardiola, I don't think there's a press been a press conference this season where he's not praised De Bruyne um, to the heavens. And De Bruyne, from the people I know who are close to him, are 
is very happy with his role at Manchester City, the way he's playing at the moment, the life there. There's no agitation to, to move. What's interesting is um, De Costa, uh, Patrick De Costa, De Bruyne's agent, when speaking to, um, I think, an Italian radio station this week, was asked about the contract and the, the renegotiations. And he said, um, there's no rush there. But when we do talk about it, the, the reference point for discussing the salary will be the money that Neymar earns, earns at PSG. And I think that's a fascinating indicator where you've got a player who's by no means top of the tree in world football, but is showing the potential that he could get there. And already his agent, who's at one of the, the two most affluent clubs in the world, is saying, look, Neymar is on uh, the best part of a million pounds a week gross at PSG. So if we're talking a new contract for my client, you've got to start looking at those type of numbers because that's what the expectation is going to be for that level of player coming down the line. Do we think he might have to change his first name to Cavino in order to convince them to pay that amount of money? <laughs> As is the age-old argument in English football. If he were Brazilian, then he'd be playing and be getting paid this amount of money. And he's Belgian, not Brazilian. One, one uh, person we should bring up uh, since we were listing... English guys who played for Real Madrid is the legend that is Jonathan Woodgate. Jonathan Woodgate, I was thinking that. And you know what, as well, Henry, when Duncan said about the English media liking to build up their best players um, to go to Real Madrid, Barcelona, and I have been, I admit, the recipient of this particular um, perk, it means several trips to Spain a year to go and interview, see, talk about said <laughs> player. And I, 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 do, um, I do recall the uh, Newcastle United correspondent of the Newcastle Chronicle um, going to Madrid to interview Johnny Woodgate. So, it, you know, it, 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 it's a gift it keeps on giving. Indeed. Well, my favourite player who went to Spain was Stady Archibald. But uh, less said about that, the better. Um, OK, gents. Uh, any other business in this uh, this week's transfer window podcast? That's a resounding <laughs> no. <laughs> Silence. Right. Well, um, we'll cut it short there. Then um, that's been the transfer window podcast, uh, brought to you in association with Ian McGarry and uh, Duncan Castles. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us. You can hear us. Uh, subscribe on iTunes. Make sure you do it and tell your friends. Thank you very much. Goodbye.